The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. This morning, Jeb's off visiting his mom, Jack's feeling a little feisty, and Dave's, well, Dave's just being Dave. The virtues of really big airplanes, an update on user fees, we hear from listeners on making flight training affordable, cockpit automation gone awry, and a float plane to the rescue. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 21, Flying Upside Down. The weather showed a pepperoni pizza along my route. I had a big bruise on the palm of my hand because I slammed the knob in to disengage the autopilot, and right behind my hand was the seller's mechanic's hand. That was back when I had this misplaced sense of respect for the two of you, but I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned. Welcome, folks, to episode 21 of Uncontrolled Airspace. I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, also hanging out with me in the virtual hangar this morning is uh, Dave Higdon. Dave is talking to us from Wichita, Kansas, where uh, Dave works as a works and lives as an aviation photographer. He's a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine and also the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. Good morning, David. Good morning, Jack, Jim, pilots in the world. I hope everybody's having a great uh, early spring. Uh-huh. Uh, see, I, was, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about weather this morning, so don't get me started. Okay. Also also with us this morning in the uh, in the hangar is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as a contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, David, and all our listeners. I hope everyone's enjoying the spring. Yeah. So, so Jeb, you're on the road this morning. Where are you? What's going on? I am on, on the road. I am uh, at my uh, family home in uh, Georgia, uh, Tifton, Georgia, um, down here to visit my mother. She's in the hospital for some uh, minor surgery and whatnot, um, and uh, taking care of some of the homestead issues and... Uh, um, I'm trying to do a variety of things. Unfortunately, I have uh, sometimes real work to do while I'm on the road, and and uh, this I is hate what it when that happens. happens. I, I I truly it truly sucks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, managed to. Who do you uh, get to do the real work? I, I it's it's tough. You know, there's nobody down here I really know that well to pawn it, to pawn it off on, and and. Uh, uh, I have to roll up my sleeves occasionally and do it myself. But uh, oh my God, and show those arms! Oh, yeah, yeah. Flew down here uh, Tuesday. I was thinking about all the hair. But- oh, the hair, yeah, yeah. The tattoos and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, flew down here Tuesday night, and uh, probably going to head back uh, tomorrow uh, or mid morning, something like that. Anybody who knows me is going to be laughing their butt off right now because uh, Dave, is, as you've correctly noted in the past, I'm genetically incapable of turning the key on an airplane. To Ignition before, before noon local time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, we, could, we, we could just about do that one, that line in harmony. Yeah, Jeb, Jeb and I have traveled together enough times that we we know this firsthand. It's, uh, it's unlikely, shall uh-huh, we say. Uh-huh. I, have, I have taken off before dawn local uh, in the past, but that's because yeah. you didn't go to bed the night before, right? No, no. There was an episode several years ago. I had to, I had a presentation to give uh, in a, let's say a distant location, and uh, was going to fly down the night before. And um, checking the uh, the weather showed basically uh, a pepperoni pizza of um, next red uh, along my route, uh, all kinds of red splotches and stuff. And I sat down and thought about that long and hard and decided I did not want to deal with a bunch of thunderstorms at night. Um, Probably knowing, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. So not having radar and, and uh, not having you know this big spotlight or anything on the airplane to illuminate the clouds. And not I having just, any suicidal tendencies. And not having suicidal tendencies. So I decided to uh, uh, bag it for that evening and get up O-Dark 30 and uh, launch before uh, dawn uh, when the thunderstorms would have gone to sleep and gone to bed. And uh, it worked out perfectly. Had a nice, smooth ride. Uh, watched the sun uh, rise over my shoulder, and uh, made my uh, my appointment, my presentation. Everything was right with the world. I was the first ILS that morning into my destination airport. <laughs> and there's a plaque now, right? There, no, there's no plaque. There's just a little, <laughs> not, just a little logbook notation. That's all. There is a notation in Guinness about the before sunrise departure. Yes, there. They, you know, the birds were singing, the the stars were aligned. The world, uh, the world record book, not the beer logbook, right? I've been on yeah, maybe an entry in both. We're yeah, not sure. <laughs> you know, there've been a number of trips where the uh, the the before dawn departure was uh, what the schedule dictated, and it's always kind of neat watching the sunrise or the sunset for that matter from the cockpit yeah. of a little airplane. Yeah, yeah I love being up at that hour in the morning, but it usually has to happen by accident or brute force. Brute force or accident is generally the way it works for me. Yeah. So people keep telling me, uh, pointing out to me anyways, that I always forget to introduce myself. So, and you I do. did again, and I'm on the verge of doing it again this morning. I'm Jack Hodgson. <laughs> I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Let's get and on and to very the... capable of getting a word in edgewise if the other two of us just shut the hell up. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go back and listen to the early podcasts uh, uh-huh. you know, when we got started doing this, I, I was really reluctant, and I kind of let you guys go on for a long time. But that was back when I had this misplaced sense of, you know, kind of respect for the two of you. But I've learned. <laughs> I've learned. Somebody I've learned. Three EPs to get that out of the system. <laughs> and so now I'll just jump in here because, see, I control the horizontal and I control That's the do not Welcome adjust to episode twenty one, the outer limits. <laughs> What's going on in the world of general aviation? Well, here's here's what I want to talk about a little yeah. bit. It's not strictly speaking a general aviation story, but it is kind of an interesting story, and that is that uh, Airbus's uh, what A three eighty started A three eighty yeah started its uh, U.S. Grand Tour uh, this earlier this week. Uh, it landed in I guess landed in one landed in New York and one landed in L.A. and then the two of them I don't know are going someplace and. So what's the story with this airplane? Here's my bias, all right? I Maybe it's just me, but I don't get these monster airplanes. I mean, for cargo purposes, I do understand it. Yeah. But as a, as a passenger jetliner, I don't uh-huh. quite understand the, the, the virtue of it. Is it well, really economical? Does it really it, make sense? It is. Um, let's, let's examine. If you, if you can buy it, right? <laughs> if you can afford it. But uh, uh, there are a lot of routes in the world, uh, what I would consider long and thin routes, um, 
over which there is an increasing amount of traffic. Uh, I can't really come up with intelligent examples, but think, uh, you know, London to, to Melbourne or London to Sydney or something like that, um, where there is, as I say, an increasing amount of demand for passenger traffic between those two points. Um, it's it's one thing to to put on a bunch of 747s or 777s uh, between those two points, um, but you have labor costs, you have obviously fuel costs, you have all kinds of other operational costs uh, that you incur along those routes. Why not uh, uh, meet the demand for the passengers uh, to go between those two points by uh, building, creating and building uh, a larger airplane that only has to make one trip versus two trips. Well, um, th- those are the basic economics. Now, this well, is a big one. Just just so people know the stats here, the uh, the A380 uh, has holds up to 550 passengers and, and, and is actually two complete decks. I'm sorry, yeah. Dave, say again? In three class and two complete decks. Right. Yeah, two complete, not like a 747 that has this little mini second, you know, upper right. deck. This has a complete... Well, and, and, and the upper deck on a 747-400 now is uh, almost half the length of the, uh, of the airplane. Oh, okay. But right. this one's grown least, progressively. But on the A380, it is two full-length... Two full-length decks. And how, how many seating wide is it in the cabin, do you know? Ooh, that's a good, you know, they haven't invited me for a flight yet. Uh, I would guess it's uh, two five two two four two. I don't know. Okay, yeah. So it, it's a big airplane. Well, yeah. In, in high density, it could could even be uh, three five three. Yeah, and I, I would also say that um, the uh, the four five hundred passenger numbers that you hear bandied about are for the cl- three class configurations if the airplane were configured all economy or all coach as it were uh it might be pushing 800 passengers really and, yeah. and to kind of go along and in parallel a little bit what jeb was talking about on long thin routes uh the airplane also has a, a lot of appeal to, to carriers where they have very high density traffic and are running multiple aircraft uh right. every day Right. And uh, some European destinations to uh, American cities like New York, Washington, Chicago, and L.A. Uh, and Dallas may support multiple flights a day uh, by the same carrier. And you can check some of the uh, some of the carrier schedules. Some of these are not that far apart; they're spaced just far apart enough to keep from hopefully keep from overloading customs and immigration at each end. Yeah. Well, if you yeah. can take two flights. And boil it down to one. Now, instead of four crews crossing, because you've got crew and duty limitations, say, between Dallas and Paris, uh, you're down to two crews, uh, half the number of uh, air crew. Uh, the flight attendant numbers are proportional to the passengers. So as the passenger count goes up, it just basically covers itself, uh, right. more or less. Uh-huh. And then you've got air traffic fees. Mm-hmm. That start to go into effect when you get handled by uh, uh, foreign air traffic control facilities uh-huh. uh, and access fees at the airports. Uh, many of those set up by the thousand pounds or by the ten thousand pounds. So the heavier airplane is going to incur higher landing fees, but it may be lower than putting two flights together 
uh, on the same route. So that there's a lot of potential with this airplane. Uh, the, and you said you understood the cargo aspects of it, Jack. And interestingly enough, that's the one aspect of the A380 that has gone from uh, uh, barely successful to totally unsupported now uh, in right. the last few months. Really? There are no cargo buyers for this airplane at the moment. That's right. Uh, it was UPS uh, just, ha- just in the last month or so canceled. Uh, an order for cargo configured 380s and uh, switched that order instead to, I believe, 777s. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, one other point about uh, uh, something that Dave mentioned, and I, I completely overlooked it, is in fact the gate availability issue. As as you, as JetBlue recently demonstrated, there is a shortage of gates. Yeah. And um, any time that you can consolidate uh, one flight, or two, I'm sorry, two or more flights into one, uh, you've saved gate fees and, and ramp space. Although clearly the 380 takes up a little bit more ramp space than the average RJ. But now, how well, does that work with it, a two-decker? Do, do, does the well, second the A380s it required a new generation of jetways and the airports that are using it have had to modify their gate system and their terminals to provide new jetways for those higher levels exactly so you may have four jetways simultaneously connected to this aircraft two on the lower and two on the upper deck the 747 uh, 300 and 400 and then the 767 300 uh, ER uh, when I've flown on those uh, years ago uh, we had two separate entryways into the aircraft so that they could load passengers much more quickly well double the number of decks there and that's what they've done to solve the uh, the uh, situation with the A380 so right. unloading it and loading it in a reach amount of time. Now that's just a whole lot of luggage to lose. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> now, it's a whole another one lot of, the, of poundage to, to, to control. Too. Yeah. Now, another one of the punchlines here is I, apparently, as of now, no U.S. air carriers have ordered one of these things. That is either, correct. Right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Now, is that because they don't get the economics of it, or is it because they're waiting for Boeing's entry? Probably a little of both. You'd have to ask them, I think, is a quick answer, but probably a little bit of both. And there's probably also uh, the issue of, of Airbus is, is way behind schedule in getting this airplane finished and certificated and, and flying the line. Um, one reason for that was an engineering snafu that was uncovered a year or two ago um, in some at some point in the design and engineering they decided to stretch the fuselage a little bit um, and forgot to tell the people doing the electrical engineering as a, con- as a consequence um, you know, I don't know all the details I'm sure our listeners could fill us in <clears throat> but uh, as a consequence the ele- some of the electrical harnesses came up a few millimeters too short and they had to go back and, and re-engineer a lot of that um, that's just one of the delays that Airbus encountered. Uh-huh. It's it's more than two years behind schedule now. And uh, last estimate I heard on the profit lost that would have been uh, generated had they been delivering on time was uh, six, six to eight billion dollars. Yeah. Now, what's the story on? So, am I right that Boeing is working on a uh, comparable airplane? No. No, no not, they not already quite. have one. It's called the 747-400. Well, they're working uh, they, they, on a stretch might, to the 47400 right. too. They, uh, they might stretch that. But they're, they're working they're, on something called the 747-8X, uh, uh, I believe it that's is. Right. That's right. And uh, it's, it's going to 
carry more passengers and fly farther. Uh, it is more than just a simple stretch of the fuselage, uh, uh, and you know, simple stretch of fuselage is maybe oversimplifying it a little bit. But from the 100 to the 200, um, Boeing basically stretched the fuselage, and from the uh, 200 to 300, they had to uh, not only stretch the fuselage but do some update on the wing and the landing gear because of the higher weights. Right. Uh, then there was more of that incurred on the 400, and there's even more of that being incurred on the uh, on the 800. The uh, 8x, I think, is they're calling it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not going to come up to the size uh, of the uh, of the A380, but it is going to get close enough for a lot of U.S. customers that are already international customers that are already operating 747s because there'll be enough commonality there, particularly on the flight deck, right. that uh, uh, common type rating is highly possible. There'll be enough commonality there to make maintenance a little less expensive than having a totally separate type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Boeing's already more than amortized a, a fair amount of the uh, hardware and tooling uh, that will be used uh to help move this new airplane down the line, so uh, Boeing's kind of on a roll right at the moment, and and, and not the least of which is how it's doing selling uh, selling uh, airliners as private aircraft. Yeah, right. They've sold well, over a hundred of those in the last ten years. So, uh, one hundred eighteen, I think, was the last number I saw. One hundred eighteen, one hundred twenty, seven thirty sevens, and other types sold as Boeing business jets or as private aircraft, and. Uh, uh, Boeing and GE, its partner in Boeing Business Jets, have clearly uh, uh, decoded what it takes to sell to the corporate market in that in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm well, it's, to, it's, it's corporate. Ahead, and, uh, the the Boeing Business Jet market is uh, surprisingly um, not as much corporate as we might think. A lot of it is uh, foreign governments. Uh, and the foreign governments buying the, the the jet for use as their own Air Force One, right? Mm-hmm. right. Kind of thing. And it's, well, it's also done quite well in in, in corporate and, and even yeah, private. It has. It has. Uh, no question. And uh, oh, Jim and I'm trying to remember the couple of jet management companies actually operate them as lease aircraft. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you could dial up and uh, you know book a, a Boeing business jet one, two, or uh, you know not too soon, uh, not too distant future three, uh, for that private party that you want to take down to spring break. Uh-huh. Well, I'm looking forward to the uh, A380s. One of its first visits up here to Boston. Uh, go check it out. Um, it's. I, I actually have very very fond memories of when, like a million years ago, Boeing did the same kind of tour for the 747. Oh, really? Yeah. Which yeah. was, and and the 747 was just a dramatically bigger airplane than any right. other airplane on the ramp. Um, and that's when the 747 was much smaller than it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, much smaller. <laughs> and I remember I remember going out to Logan Airport in Boston and going and that was back when you when you could go out onto the outdoor observation decks on the top Oh, of the weren't those the days. And, uh, and we went out there and we stood on the observation deck lo- even looking down on the 747. Uh, it looked monstrous it was it was quite an experience and that was that was also back in the days when boeing was was pitching the 74 uh, and the upstairs lounge with the piano and and the bar and that's yeah. you know and, and that never really went over all that well with the airlines they immediately converted that to revenue uh, space but yep. uh, uh, it's 
all, all the good old days. Yeah. Well, whether or not it makes economical sense or engineering sense, it's a pretty impressive, at least from the pictures, a pretty impressive looking piece of uh, aviation uh, uh, equipment. Okay. And I'm looking forward to seeing it up close one of these days. Have, have no doubt about this. The, the, the commercial carriers that have orders for this A380 uh, made those orders on their belief, their calculations, that it would make economic sense on their particular businesses. Yeah. And uh, nobody buys these things for status symbols. Right. right. Way too much money. And, and interestingly enough, uh, Airbus did a little bit of the same thing that uh, uh, Jeb was talking about with uh, Boeing on the upper deck of the, the original 4-7. Uh, they showed them the A380 configured with, you know, entertainment space, bar space, uh, lounge space that uh, I don't believe anybody that's putting it into commercial service is actually using uh, yeah, for that purpose. They're all putting seats in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on, let's see now. We haven't... We haven't talked about the FAA in a couple of episodes, and that's just that, dun, just, dun, dun, dun. that just can't go on. Uh, no, apparently there's been some news, some more developments in the uh, FAA funding uh, issue over the past couple of weeks. Am I right? The uh, the hearings are going on now. Is that yes, right? Yes. And, uh, hearings last week and this week. Yeah. So uh, and, and it doesn't and, seem to be going good for the FAA team in yeah, terms it, of reception. There's just just a lot of opposition to it uh, from lots of different fronts. Not and and not. Uh, well, let me put it this way: It is bipartisan opposition to it the. It is bipartisan, uh, and it is uh, fairly br- wide, <clears throat> fairly broad. Um, in that, uh, if you the reports that I've seen from the House side hearings uh, have been uh, uh, pretty uniform in that uh, a vast majority of the House Subcommittee on Aviation members are opposed uh, to the user fee proposals. One consistent loan holdout is uh, uh, Representative John Micah of Florida, a re- Republican and former chairman of that subcommittee, uh, who frankly states, he says pretty much up front, says, I'm the only guy here who, who does support this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he believes, is, that, he believes that, quote, users, uh, beneficiaries, should fund 100% of it, that there should be no general fund contribution. Uh, this is uh, nonsense that started back with the Reagan administration when they had the Office of Management and Budget conduct a, uh, a survey into the public benefit, quote-unquote, of aviation. And the OMB came back and reported that aviation has no benefit to the general public. Right. Can you imagine that? Right. So rescuing people, hauling uh, businesses, uh, uh, business concerns uh, across the country, uh, law enforcement, search and rescue, uh, traffic control, uh, moving checks at night, none of that benefits the public. That no. was the and, message. And, and in fact, um, the, the concept of em- enhancing safety and regulating aviation so that airplanes don't fall on people unsuspecting, uh, it has no public benefit either. Yep. Yep. It was uh, just an an insane contention that got repeated so much that some people like Micah, uh, you know, have, have have stuck with it. Well, if if uh, you repeat if you repeat something long enough, even if it is false or untrue and has no factual basis, people will start to believe it. Uh, and I think about this: the Federal Aviation Administration's air traffic control system is the entity that handles the majority of military air traffic control over Uh the majority of the American continent the majority of the time. 
but that is not a public benefit, yeah. according yeah. to the OMB study. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of lies, big lies, and damn lies, this is a damn big lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the process is under underway to uh, decide whether or not they're going to go ahead with this. Uh, we obviously are 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 pleased that the, there's a lot of opposition being stated, but it's not too late for you to uh, uh, you the our listener audience to uh, make your feelings known to your representatives, uh, one way or the other. No, this this isn't done, folks, until the the the, the guy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue puts his name on on the bottom line and signs this into into law. This being the so entire budget. The the entire FAA reauthorization, the budget, right. the whole enchilada. Right. right. So, you know, there is no window here. There is nothing that can be said or done that I can believe will give reason to let up on the pressure, to let up on the rhetoric. Right. Don't let stop the- making our put that we need an excise tax funded system that's easy to manage, easy to collect, inexpensive to, to distribute. Uh, we need the FAA uh, maintained as a government-controlled entity with the Congress as the board of directors. Uh, that's called oversight, folks. That's called not giving them a blank check, which is what the proposal would do. So until it's signed on the bottom line, uh, probably not until September at the rate these things move, Right. Uh, don't consider this and don't take, hear something and say, oh, well, you know, I, I can stop worrying about that. You can't. <clears throat> yeah. No, no, you can't. Okay. Uh, that's, no, Dave's exactly right. Uh, if I were to, to prognosticate here on, on what will happen, um, Congress right now is, is uh, as we noted earlier, going through the, the hearing phase. They're uh, collecting testimony from the FAA, from the various user groups like AOPA. Uh, from the airlines uh, and, and those uh, user groups, those, those trade associations, um, they are looking at various aspects of the proposal, not only uh, the aspects that would involve user fees, but they're also looking at how airports would be funded. They're looking at how uh, new equipment purchases for air, for the air traffic control system would be funded and, and in fact, what those purchases might entail. Um, this is going on on both the House and the Senate side. Uh, at some point uh, over the summer, uh, and I would guess it would be you know the June um, July time frame, uh, there would be a bill um, developed. That bill uh, would be introduced by the leadership um, uh, in the House and the Senate. Um, the bill would be a, a starting point for negotiations. Um, the jumping-off point for user fees would be the extent to which, if any, that draft proposed bill will include user fees in it. And uh, at that point, we'll all know a lot more about uh, uh, the consensus uh, uh, in the House and the Senate. Um, I, I was told a couple of weeks ago by someone who, who knows, or should know anyway, that on the Senate side, uh, the chairman uh, of the Senate subcommittee, uh, Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia, uh, is very undecided on this uh, this user fee issue. Uh, very undecided as to uh, uh, whether 
um, the user fees uh, uh, should be put into place. Whether uh, basically whether the airlines will win this battle or whether the whether general aviation will win this battle. And if I were to make any recommendations to any listeners or anyone else as to where to spend some bullets, as it were, um, it would be the Senate side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we're pretty much singing to the choir for the majority of the House. Right. Uh, you know, looking at some quotes from uh, uh, Jim Oberstar, the the uh, representative from Minnesota, uh, who chairs one of the subcommittees. Uh, he, he, he chairs the entire full committee, actually. Oh, that's right. He chairs the full committee now. Yeah. And uh, uh, he believes that uh, uh, this proposal would... Uh, Take the pressure off FAA to be efficient, uh, to be efficient, uh, uh-huh. because they would have the ability to raise fees to whatever level they needed to to cover any cost overruns. Right. Uh, that was the blank check aspect that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, Jerry Costello, another member from Illinois, uh, uh, expressed the same concerns about the, uh, the ability to the authority to raise fees. Uh, and about how the uh, FAA hadn't always had the best track record for managing us, and there's there's a lot of equipment to be uh, uh, acquired here over the next uh, ten to fifteen years, uh, like Jeb was talking about, because of the uh, proposal to move to the next generation air traffic control system or uh, uh, next gen or NGATS, depending on which acronym you like. Uh, there's a, a user group that includes uh, Defense Department and TSA and, 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 and all the GA groups and the airlines that have been working on this uh, uh, plan. And the latest iteration of it was uh, released a little over a week ago. Uh, we're talking tens of billions of dollars here over the next several years for the FAA to invest. Mm-hmm. And uh, they come to Congress with this cockamamie proposal that uh, actually reduces the money collected and would make it more imperative to raise more money in subsequent years to cover the shortfall, uh, raising less money in the, than, the, than the current system would. So how that solves the funding crisis that they say is looming is just, it's one of those things that, like this administration has done before, just flies in the face of logic, but they won't let go of the rhetoric. We have a Come funding on, crisis. We have a funding crisis. We need to raise less money to solve it. Come on, Dave. Don't hold back. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm done. Let me let me step back from that precipice for a moment and and kind of point out a couple of, of very real concerns that I might have down the road here. Uh, we just mentioned, or I should say, Dave just mentioned Oberstar and Costello. Uh, Jim Oberstar is a is a very senior, uh, well respected. Um, Democratic member of the House of Representatives. He's, he's been up there as long as I can remember. Uh, he is presently chairman of the House sub, or House Full Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure. Uh, the vast majority of his colleagues uh, understand uh, his his uh, seniority. They understand and know about his uh, int- long-term interest in and commitment to aviation and aviation safety. And his expertise in those areas. Yeah, and his expertise. Thank you. That was the word I was searching for. Um, they will, as a consequence, defer to him, not only because he's chairman of the full committee, but because of that longstanding expertise. Um, and Oberstar uh, is generally a, a fair-minded individual. I've, I've had dealings with him in the past, and him and his staff. Um, however, 
the fly in the ointment is uh, Oberstar is from Minnesota, and there is one major airline that is headquartered in Minnesota. Uh, Costello, uh, similarly uh, situated, he's not been around as long as uh, Oberstar has, uh, but he has a similarly uh, highly developed uh, uh, commitment to aviation. Uh, he is from the Chicago area, and there is another major U.S. airline headquartered in the Chicago area. I'm not suggesting that any of these two gentlemen, either of these two gentlemen, will uh, uh, be beholden to those interests, to those airlines, but it is a consideration. Uh, the punchline here is I would strongly urge um, anyone who lives in uh, those two congressional districts, Oberstars and Costellos, to communicate uh, politely, constantly, and repeatedly. Uh, their opposition to user fees to those two gentlemen um, and hopefully uh, uh, outweigh the input that they're getting from airlines. Okay. Go Go ahead. Uh, We haven't fun yet. Yeah, really. Uh, Can we wrap this one up? Anything else or can we move on? Stick a fork in it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's see now. What's next? Uh, In addition to listening to this podcast, we hope that everyone out there will also visit the Uncontrolled Airspace website at Uncontrolled. We have a website? We have a website. And we're getting more and more people there all the time. uh, It's it's very gratifying. Um, It's not a huge audience, but it is a growing audience, and uh, we enjoy uh, interacting with folks there. The website is at uncontrolledairspace.com, and there's all kinds of good stuff to be found there. For example... I'll have to check that out. You (laughs) can... We have to have a talk with you, Jeb. All right. <laughs> See, I wasn't necessarily going to air this out in public, but if you're going to like be, be taking shots at me here while I'm doing our little promo, you're going to confess. All right, we're going to we're going to have to out you as being the person who has been unable to overcome the technological challenge of figuring out what your username and password is. I know, I know exactly <laughs> what my username and password are. They're the same ones I use in a variety of other locations, but the blinking website won't accept them and it says we will be happy to send you an email containing all of this stuff and it says email sent and i never get an email so i i just work here you know dave and i are going to have to appear on your doorstep one of these days and kind of lead you through it step by step anyway not before but not before name regardless of the absence of jeb's wonderful uh uh, contributions there is all sorts of good stuff to be found at the website you can see show notes for all of our episodes with links to the web pages that we talk about and other background information also remember we love getting feedback so send your questions comments and news tips to podcast at uncontrolled airspace.com or you can call our listener line and leave us an audio comment you can get the phone number and instructions on how to use the listener line on the front page of our website and finally please visit your favorite podcast directory like itunes or dig or yahoo podcasts and leave some feedback there about this show so other people can decide if they want to subscribe to uncontrolled airspace so if you didn't copy all that don't worry just visit the uncontrolled airspace website it's all there and more it's www.uncontrolledairspace.com Com. Write to us, talk to us, sing to us, just, uh, but don't file your flight plans with us. It'll never right. get anywhere. 
And so, like I said, we love getting uh, uh, feedback from our listeners, and we got two pretty interesting bits of feedback I wanted to uh, share this morning. The first is a uh, an email we got uh, from Joe in, I believe he's from Louisiana, uh, Joe from, um, if I'm correct, from Monroe, Louisiana. And uh, he sent us a very extensive, very interesting email, and I'm not going to try and read the entire email on the podcast, but we're going to post the email uh, in the blog uh, uh, at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. But I just want to kind of touch on the highlights. He has a lot of really interesting... uh, We we were talking in past episodes about ways for people... Um, who who don't have a lot of money uh, for how to learn how to how to, how to bear the expense of learning how to fly, um, and uh, and Joe had some interesting suggestions on ways to uh, to kind of uh, he calls it his uh, tips for the frugal student pilot. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, Joe from Monroe, Louisiana. Um, I believe he's from because I believe he was giving us his air, air his uh, airport identifier uh, MLU, uh, which I looked up is Monroe Regional Airport in Monroe, Louisiana. Joe from Louisiana writes, uh, Hi, Jack. I'm still loving the podcast and like the title that, quote-unquote, you guys chose. I should give you a little background information here. Joe was one of the very first people to ever send us email feedback about the podcast. This was back in the early days when we hadn't even named it Uncontrolled Airspace yet, and we were asking people to suggest names. Oh, is that when we were using string and tin cans? That's the one. Yep, that's the one. Although some people would think that's what we're using last week with all the (laughs) challenges we were having. But anyways... uh, I digress. Let's see. Where was I? Oh, so he was one of the people who sent us, and a lot of people sent us some interesting suggestions for titles to, for the uh, for the podcast. We settled, of course, on uncontrolled airspace, and uh, and that's what he's referring to. He says, "I have a few suggestions for the listeners that want to get uh, his license, uh, but the but who may be budget constrained." He says, and he refers to these people as the frugal student pilot. And again, I'm going to summarize these, and you guys interrupt me as I list them if you want to want to discuss it a little bit. Number one, he says, check out the local local library he said you should have free internet service there and possibly aviation texts on the shelves so you don't necessarily need to buy all these books number two i'm sorry go ahead very good suggestion yep excellent yep number two he says visit the faa website that's at www.faa.gov he says all the material that you need to study is online and free Mm -hmm. and uh and i think he specifically mentioned uh, as an example the uh uh the exam book, the uh, practical yes. test standards. Right. Well, you can get the practical test standards. And I don't know if you wanted to just kind of uh, comment on this as we go through this. Yeah, uh, just let's but, elaborate as we uh, go. Go ahead. Um, not only are the practical test standards online at the FAA, but so are the written exam questions. Um, the answers are not available, but that's a good thing in that you, you don't want to just sit down and bone up for, uh, you know, question 37, the answer is C. You want to bone up for, okay, this is the question that asks such and such and so and so, and one of the tricks to answering this question is, uh, you know, a left the, 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 the bolt is left-hand threaded or something. Um, you, you want to sit down with your instructor and look at the question and divine the answer by applying uh, uh, your ground school training. Um, so the, the 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 test questions are there. The practical test exams are there. Um, the Airman's Information, uh, Air, I'm sorry, it used to be the Airman's Information Manual. It's now the Aeronautical Information Manual. <laughs> um, uh, we have to be politically correct. Um, all kinds of other resources that are standard references, standard texts for uh, the FAA's recommended curriculum and, in fact, for answering and getting through the written exam 
all of that stuff's online on the FAA website, free for the for the download in in PDF, free for the uh, the online examination and reading. So. Um, there are other texts out there from private commercial sources uh, that are as good or better than some of the FAA texts, but uh, it's all there, and it's all there for the asking. Yeah. Moving the, right along. The next, uh, the next suggestion uh, from Joe is uh, AOPA, one of our favorite uh, pilot organizations. He says, uh, join and use their website. Uh, he elaborates a little bit. He says, I watched the 30-minute video about landings yesterday and learned a lot and was entertained with the examples and good presentation. He says they have a whole section for the student pilot with many tutorials. Uh, and he says, and I confess I didn't confirm this, he says that uh, AOPA membership the first six months is free. Do you know if that's the case? I, I, I don't know if that's the case. I suspect it, they, they do have some promotion at one level or another for that. Well, the, uh, the flight training magazine is uh, available to student pilots. Yeah. Uh, I know for six months for free. In any event, AOPA is a great resource. Uh, number four on uh, Joe's list is talk to the FBOs in your area. He says, uh, he says, I didn't have time to schedule much classroom work for ground school, but we worked out a self-study program. So, in other words, if you have a special, if you have special needs, talk to the FBOs and work it out, and uh, you can save some of your resources that way. And finally, he says, uh, he says, go to the Sporties webpage. Sporties being the uh, the catalog and now online uh, aviation stuff. Shop. Yeah, Sporties mm-hmm. Pilot Shop. Go to the Sporties webpage. He says they have a great quiz section that will let you take mock, mock written exams over and over. Mm-hmm. So it's another way to practice. Uh, very good. You know. So those are his uh, five suggestions for the frugal student pilot. He goes on to make a suggestion to all of us to help the frugal student pilot and to help all pilots. He says, he says, now I have a plea for everyone, not just student pilots. He says, please, please, please donate your read, out-of-date, taking-up-space books to the nearest library. He says your far aim from 2006 might be a great resource for the potential student pilot. He says any aviation or other text that you aren't using is a great resource for the less fortunate. He says it's much better than letting them gather dust or go to the landfill. He says I'd also make a plea for the FBOs to let their out-of-date maps and manuals go to students for practice. Why dump them in the trash when a student can practice? He mm-hmm. says, good, good flying, brother. This is from Joe, uh, who is apparently an MD and definitely a student pilot from MLU, Mike Lima Uniform, Monroe, Louisiana. Thank you, Joe. Let me toss in one really quick do, uh, do. addition. Didn't want to toss in one really quick uh, uh, additional resource that... Not every community has, but a lot of communities have, and that's the. Hello, is everybody still there? Yeah, no, I'm here. We lost uh, Jeb for some okay. reason. Okay, let's just. That's the uh, you. Stand by. Sure. Did I, I? How did I get dropped? I don't know. What'd you do? I didn't. I was just sitting here listening. Okay. Well, sit there listening uh, some more, Dave. Continue. <laughs> 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 oh, Jack's had his coffee today. <laughs> yeah, man. Just uh, don't touch anything. Yeah, keep I your haven't... hands in your pockets. Well, maybe not in your pockets. Sit on your no, hands. No, don't there go, go there. Uh, 
So uh, a, a, another additional resource to go along with Joe's suggestions uh, uh, available in some communities is an Experimental Aircraft Association chapter. EAA has a vast network of local chapters. Many of those create their own libraries of flight training and instructional materials that uh, if you're a member of that local chapter, you can access, you can check it out. Uh, you probably can find a uh, flight instructor or two there that may be a little bit more reasonable to work with uh, than uh, the local flight school or FBO in terms of price and flexibility. Uh, and uh, it's worth checking out. An EAA for a student pilot has definitely got its own benefits, too. So, Great. Yeah. All those are great suggestions. Um, the, the, the suggestion that um, AOPA has kind of institutionalized, however, is, is the mentor pilot uh, thing. Um, uh, I was fortunate. My father, uh, when I was growing up and, and uh, um, interested in aviation, my father uh, was, a, was a pilot. He had his commercial uh, certificate. And, uh, of course, he was only too happy to <clears throat> instill in me the things that he had learned and pass, pass them along. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't know that I would have... have gotten my certificates uh in the fashion i did or certainly uh uh in the in the the fa in the way i did um uh if he had not been um right there you know urging me along uh being a uh, a cheerleader for me and having the resources and knowing where to go get them and of course this was uh back in the dark days uh before the internet so we didn't have uh a free uh, resources uh, for this material like we do now. Yeah. So lots of great suggestions from Joe. Thank you very much. We appreciate that feedback. And uh, the, like I said, Joe had a lot more comments. He elaborated on a lot of his uh, his points for the frugal student pilot. And we're going to post the complete email on the uh, website, uh, probably in the blog area. So take a look there. We had another. And we got another bit of feedback like this week. We got an audio mess, uh, an audio comment uh, by way of our listener line. And uh, let's see if I can play that. Hi guys, uh, my name is Sean Winger. I'm uh, from out here in Honolulu. I'm a loyal listener wow. of your podcast. And a couple things in uh, number 19 caught my attention. Um, one of the major things was was the cost of flying, and we referred to that gentleman who couldn't afford to uh, necessarily pursue uh, aggressive flight training. And I've noticed that that is a uh, common denominator and a lot of people wanting to learn how to fly, but there were some other issues, too, that um, I think we could uh, mention and bring up um, as far as ways to pay for the training. Um, definitely the uh, you know five-gallon water jug full of uh, pennies and extra dollars, and that is one way. Another, re another way to do it is, is uh, ground instruction. Um, there's really no requirement that states that you have to be a uh, super pilot to be a ground instructor um, mm -hmm. that's different from a flight instructor. Uh, that's one way that uh, I, I did it, and uh, I got through, and I used the money that uh, I used for ground instruction. Cause I know a lot of flight schools um, get busy. Uh, you've got a limited number of planes, a uh, limited number of students, um, have to have the flight hours. So having that ground instructor there is helpful to the CFIs. Um, you're not going to make a king ransom, but you'll get enough to uh, supplement that uh, water jar full of uh, 
quarters, nickels, things like that. And all that's required is is the fundamentals of instruction test through the FAA and the knowledge test. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly one way to uh, get it. Um, it is easier if you get your private ticket um, before then. The, the knowledge factor tends to be up there a little bit, uh, and I, bo- I don't believe that that is a requirement. But um, you can uh, be a ground instructor. That is one way to uh, finance it. So I just will input to the show, and looking forward to the next podcast. Take care, you guys. Stay flying. Bye. That's Sean from Hawaii, who has an interesting Thanks, suggestion yeah, on how to finance your that, flight train. That is, a, that is an interesting suggestion. I happen to have my advanced ground instructor ticket, uh, mainly because I didn't want to ever take the fundamentals of instruction again if I uh, uh, <laughs> wanted to uh, uh, become a flight instructor. And, and uh, I, I will be honest and say that my... Uh, uh, training and my adding up certificates kind of stopped back then but um, the AGI or, or, or the basic ground instructor ticket, BGI I think it's called um, do allow you do give you uh, uh, some experience in going and not only getting through FAA written exams but do qualify you to, to make some money on the side on the ground um, they give you the, the certification that you have the knowledge uh, and the expertise to, in fact, instruct uh, primary students, among others. Um, the, um, the the ground instructor tickets are generally thought of as being prerequisites for some of the high-end simulator uh, companies, uh, Simuflight, Flight Safety, etc. I don't know if Simuflight's even in business anymore. Um, but um, certainly they can be used for primary training. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, very good. good. Very, very good, Sean. Very good. Thanks. Yeah. Let's see. So thanks again to everyone who sends us uh, email and audio comments. We really enjoy them and uh, keep them coming. Let's see. What's next? Uh, here's my weekly story, News of the Weird here. You hear about this story about the <laughs> F-22s that were crossing the uh, international dateline and their software <laughs> crashed? This apparently yes. is a true story. This is very yeah. reminiscent of the of what I'm certain was an urban legend back in the early days of fly-by-wire. There was a story about... Uh, the story went around that said that this probably a fighter plane, but some sort of military aircraft um, that had high, lots of computer controls. And the first time it passed across the equator, like from the north to the south, the first time it passed from the across the equator, which means that the latitude and longitude went from a positive number to a to a negative number, the aircraft was commanded to flip upside down. And <laughs> which is kind of an entertaining uh, notion, particularly if you're a computer guy or programmer, but uh, but is almost certainly... Kind of an interesting notion for yeah, a pilot. But, but is almost certainly not true. Uh, uh, that never happened. But apparently it is true that, that uh, this, uh, uh, apparently more than one, a flight of some sort of, of uh, F-22s were j- about a month ago flying uh, out of the Pacific Ocean, and when they cr- – this is the report that is in a, from a CNN story. As they crossed the international dateline, which probably means as they crossed that 180-degree meridian um, – the software crashed, and suddenly, I'm surprised they were even able to fly the aircraft. And the story goes they were able to fly the aircraft, but they, um, they, uh, the navigation systems went down. The, fl- uh, you know, the heads-up displays went down. Apparently, the aircrafts dumped all their fuel at this point. Uh, just ugly, ugly Ooh. things happened. <laughs> and, and- I'm not sure about the fuel dumping thing. Um, 
the the um, <clears throat> a little bit of background on that. One, the um, the F twenty twos were uh, being ferried, I believe, from uh, Honolulu or from Hawaii to Japan as part of a goodwill tour. Uh, they had also uh, with them a um, a tanker, an airborne right. tanker, in in company, so that uh, you know, obviously, they don't have the legs to make that flight nonstop. Um, so the tanker was kind of long as as Big Brother, as it were. Uh, when they crossed the international dateline, yes, the, the computer systems dumped. Now, some systems um, uh, remained operational. For example, um, those systems that controlled the engine. Uh, those systems that apparently allowed them to communicate, uh, things like that. But their navigation, their, uh, uh, in fact, perhaps their uh, um, uh, primary flight displays uh, crashed and, and were next to useless. Um, they they communicated this to the, the, the tanker in some fashion. I don't know if it was hand signals or uh, if it was radio communications <laughs> or, you know. Semaphore. Uh, semaphore holding, you know, <laughs> writing down something on a magic marker and zooming up right close to the, the, the tanker's cockpit. But basically the whole flight, the whole kit and caboodle, I don't know if this was four, six, eight, ten, twelve aircraft uh, uh, involved here, turned around and went back to Hawaii and landed there without incident. Um, very curious. Uh, just just reinforces the old concept that you never want to be an early adopter of new technology, right. especially when it comes to aviation. So so now, well, I uh, it, it it it's it's one of these, you know, we get into our most interesting crises in aviation when aircraft cross into territory that's never been breached before. Uh, or when we push the envelope a little bit beyond standard, and uh, like turning when the you think about it, in. yeah. When you think about it, why would they fly an aircraft for test purposes across the prime meridian or the international right. date line uh, when the computer software and hardware all seems to work so well over North America? Uh, ditto with crossing the equator. Uh, but just to show it doesn't have to go to this extreme, uh, having lunch with some uh, uh, aviation industry folks here in Wichita a couple of days ago, uh, one of them imparted to me uh, the apparently true story of a uh, relatively new business jet that's being built. Uh, uh, I'm not going to name it because I didn't call the folks up and, and, and kind of jerk for chain about it, but uh, relatively new business jet, not a lot of them in service. Uh, of course, the factories continue uh, to flight test these aircraft uh, well after they start delivering them to customers because they want to find out problems ahead of the customer curve and fix them ahead of the customers bumping into them. So the uh, aircraft was on a test flight, uh, post-certification, uh, adding hours to it, expanding their knowledge base. Uh, they were on their way into an airport. Uh, they were given a standard terminal arrival route and told to fly this star. So they punched it into the FMS. The flight management system started to fly the aircraft via the published procedure. Then ATC called up. I, don't, I believe there might have been a handoff. And ATC calls up and tells them, OK, we want you to vector directly to this location. And you're going to do a different star when you get over there. So they took over the aircraft drug the little cursor over to the direct destination, started to program in the second star, and once all that was done and the aircraft was en route to the next uh, waypoint, 
the uh, primary flight displays on the pilot and co-pilot side started to alternate, jump back and forth and back <laughs> and forth and back and forth. And in working with the avionics manufacturer uh, to figure out what this was, they found out that there were, it took 22 things to go wrong for this to happen. But if only 21 things went wrong, everything went fine. So the uh, FAA went back to the uh, to the avionics people because the uh, system apparently has a little has some issues when ATC issues some change clearances. Uh, the manufacturer of the aircraft is working with the FAA and the avionics manufacturer, and uh, I understand a fix is uh, is well along in the works. But this wasn't even you know ca- crossing a global or international right. boundary. This was just uh, uh, instead of going here we want you to go over there and putting that into the computer that was flying the airplane and then the computer goes no you want this one or this one did you mean this one or this one well this one or this one do you want to look at this picture or do you want to look at this picture <laughs> pilot do you want to see this picture well, pilot do you want to see that picture you just tell, tell us which one you like best stop we us all just ought to go back to being hang gliders it was just a lot simpler back then <laughs> I, I had a like I liked to have been a fly on the wall for that one. You know, it, it's interesting. I, my airplane is by no means uh, highly automated or or uh, anything like that. Hell, it um, doesn't even have two yokes. It's that's it's true. It's, it only has one yoke, and, and that's all it really needs. But I I will uh, uh, I have a Garmin 530. I have a a very good autopilot, and the two of them thankfully are linked. Uh, um, and I'll be droning and along. They play well together. And they play well together. And I'll be droning along, and ATC will say, you know, do this, do that, do the other thing. And and uh, sometimes I'm flying an arrival, I will get a change like this crew got. And uh, there have been occasions where, you know, I can't figure out what to tell the avionics to do. If I, you know, because of the way the avionics work, and I'm not blaming the avionics or anything like that. I'm blaming myself and my uh, uh, my very flat learning curve on some of this stuff. So I will punch off the autopilot and kind of go back to the the row theta um, raw data kind of mode and and uh, get the airplane more or less in the same zip code of where I'm supposed to be. But uh, uh, I, I feel for these guys, and I, I kind of have been there, not not anywhere close to that same level of automation though well my uh my, my closest uh hangar flying tail to that was uh demo flying a uh a, a used airplane that uh, annie and i were considering uh oh about 11 years ago 10 years ago now and uh the uh, aircraft had uh, it was a 1961 model it had an original equipment uh, OEM autopilot system in it that was made by a third party, but it had the the airframe manufacturer's label on it, and this was one of those uh, pneumatic autopilots, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and uh, had a horizontal directional gyro in the panel and a big knob that you pulled out to engage the gyro and the autopilot. So uh, we've already done a little bit of the shakedown on this airplane. My my AI friend and 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 uh, fellow flyer, uh, the Leprechaun from Dead Cow International, was in the back seat taking notes because he was going to do the pre-purchase inspection for us and had already started it. In fact, so we're flying along, fat, dumb, and happy. I lined the DG up, put it on a 180 degree heading, waited for everything to settle down, pulled the autopilot engage knob out, and boom. 
boy, the yokes just went like locked. Now we're up against the pneumatic system. The system is flying the airplane. We flew along about fat, dumb, and happy over central Oklahoma, headed toward a, a lakefront uh, a catfish restaurant at the Texas border, when suddenly the freaking autopilot decided that we really wanted to eat in Colorado. <laughs> And had the airplane rolled past 70 degrees in about two and a half seconds. Wow. Uh, I had a big bruise on the palm of my hand because I slammed the knob in to disengage the autopilot. And right behind my hand was the uh, uh, seller's <laughs> mechanic's hand. <laughs> yeah. I thought he'd broken half the bones in my hand. <laughs> uh, got the aircraft righted. And uh, and went back to the uh, went back to the uh, seller's uh, location. This was a, a a a used airplane sales lot, where honest to God, the salesman that came out to meet me was wearing polyester Sansa belt slacks and white shoes. God help oh. me, God is my witness. Uh, I love it. Except he was in his twenties. It was like the guy grew up with 60-year-old parents and had been locked into 1960s fashion and had never grown out of it. Anyway, needless to say, we did not, because of that and other issues, did not buy that particular airplane. <laughs> uh, and the hand healed, and I decided that if ever I come across one of those pneumatic autopilots again, I'm going to see how much it's worth in surplus and put in something electronic. So, so all this technology, you just got to keep an eye on it constantly. That's exactly right. Can never let up. Moving on right. here, let's see. I've got one other thing. This is I don't know. This is becoming a feature here at the at the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. But I've got my uh, my off field landing of the week story here. Uh, <laughs> this one is uh, this one is another great story. Uh, up in uh, in Canada near Vancouver. Uh, a guy was flying along in his seaplane, in his amphib, and uh, he saw down on the water, on, on below him, he saw an, an, a, a capsized boat with two people uh, clinging to the uh, hull. And uh, he, you know, landed and uh, taxied over to them and rescued these folks. So uh, this is pretty cool. This is from a story in uh, Aero News Network from uh, the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was flying a, a gentleman by the name of uh, St. Clair McCall. McCall. And, That's my mm -hmm. favorite part of this story. I know. Uh, and just the, the night, evening before I saw this, I was watching an old Saint movie on cable. 1940s black and white, you know, a detective called the Saint, and then here this guy comes up uh, the next morning in the news, uh, landed his beaver float plane on a lake near a capsized boat, and the the the, the rescued guy say, and and, and 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 so what's your name? And the guy says Saint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. Bond, James Bond. <laughs> well, a, a wingtip to to Saint Clair McCall. Uh, way to go! Yet another example Absolutely. of the value of general aviation. What else? We're running out of time here. Any other stories we've been missing here? Anything I've forgotten? What do we have here? Um, let's see. We, FAA's forecast is out. Uh, uh -huh. Forecast for. Uh, let me go back and find that link here. Forecast for um, um, future. Uh, years uh, fiscal years 2007 through 2020 and yeah. uh, it has uh, some very interesting uh, data in it um, we see uh, um, 
several pages on general aviation and uh, uh, this kind of thing. It, it's an interesting document. I haven't had a chance to paw through the whole thing. I don't know if there's any smoking guns in there or uh, uh, I, I suspect there aren't. Or we would have heard about them by now. Uh-huh. Well, there's seldom many real smoking guns in the FAA's annual forecast. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's a pity that they stopped having a separate general aviation forecast. It is a pity. As they did for a number of years because GA in the uh, – larger forecast tends to get i think less than it's due but then that's just me i i'm I'm built that way but if you want to see the assumptions and 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 expectations from which the faa is going to be working things like system modernization uh over the next uh 12 or 13 years uh, you can take a look at this forecast document. The link will be uh, uh, in the show notes, yep. uh, and it'll tell you where they, where the FAA's uh, full-time forecast staff sees things like commercial aviation, air cargo, general aviation, uh, uh, even VLJs. For example, mm-hmm. they're, they're forecasting that there'll be about 300 VLJs added to the fleet in uh, fiscal '97. Uh, or calendar 97, I'm sorry, uh, and that'll spool up to about 500 a year. Uh, and over the life of the forecast, uh, it will grow to the point where there's several thousand VLJs flying in the fleet. Uh, so that's just one of the things uh, that you can uh, uh, look at in the forecast conference, uh, forecast document. Uh, ditto with uh, how they expect general aviation to grow, how they expect the business segment to grow versus individual flying. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not exactly uh, 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 seat of your chair, can't put it down reading, but uh, it, it it is an interesting document to go back and refer to periodically if you wonder why in the world they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. What else? Anybody uh, uh, flying on the eastern seaboard uh, Friday, be very careful. I will be flying also, and you never know what hap- what's going to happen <laughs> when I'm airborne. So, uh, okay. <laughs> Clear what the airspace. Else? Dave, did you want to talk about this Bombardier thing? Oh, safety stand down. Yeah. yeah. And for some reason or another, I just inadvertently logged out of my notes. Uh, I hate when it inadvertently Shame on me. Uh, so, so apparently, Bombardier, you were telling us a bunch of episodes ago about attending the uh, safety stand down sponsored by Bombardier uh, there in Wichita, and you were uh-huh. regaling. Right, us I forget with which EP it was, but it was back last fall, uh, shortly after Bombardier had finished its right. tenth uh, annual air safety stand down. Uh, safety stand down is a phenomenal learning experience for pilots of all stripes. That's right. And now they're uh, going to do this in Europe? Is that the story? That's correct. Uh, in May, the uh, seventh annual European Business Aviation Convention and Exposition will be going on. And uh, that's kind of a mini NBAA convention focused on the European market and NBAA as a participant. And the uh, 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 folks at Bombardier, uh, this is headed up by the very capable and, and, and very sharp Bob Agostino, uh, who's their uh, chief uh, uh, pilot here in Wichita and uh, at the Learjet operation. Uh, he came up with this uh, several years ago after they'd had some incidents with their uh, uh, flight department 
and their test flying. And uh, initially it was done in-house, and then they expanded it to the uh, larger population of pilots. And now they get about 400 to 450 participants every year. Uh, I understand they may even be considering uh, doing a second session uh, during the year because the demand to participate, request to participate, uh, run about double what they can actually accommodate. Well, uh, because of that demand, uh, Bombardier and its co-sponsors, the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Business Aviation uh, Association, are exporting safety stand-down uh, into a two-day event to coincide uh, with uh, the eBase uh, event coming in May. Uh, pilots there will learn a great deal about personal performance, judgment, uh, uh, crisis skills, uh, psychology, fatigue, uh, how emotions affect their flying, uh, and a lot of case studies and good examples of how things can go wrong. This isn't an event geared to teaching you how to handle the aircraft uh, in an emergency, how to uh, you know uh, deal with a, a crisis from the hardware point of view. It's a thinking exercise and teaches pilots how to think in crisis, how to avoid things uh, that uh, it might happen because of the uh, mental or physi physiological state that they're in. Uh, really quite useful, and uh, I have no doubt it'll be a sellout in Europe. Uh, Sounds well. like so, a great event, and uh, yeah, I would urge yeah. any of our listeners who are based in Europe, and I, I, I bet we have some. I'm, I'm relatively I'm sure we certain do. we do. Um, to you might want to check that out if it's uh, it's within your range. Um, and that makes me think of something. Uh, before we wrap up here, I wanted to, uh, I, you know, when I when I saw you make this note about this, I was thinking, yeah, we have listeners uh, in uh, outside of the uh, continental United States. Yeah, I, I know from our website stats that we have uh, a couple for example i see a visitor from italy from time to time and uh, i think we've got an email from australia uh, so mm -hmm. uh, and of course hawaii which is outside of the continental united states so here's what i'm thinking um i would love to hear from uh our some of our listeners who are outside of the uh, continental united states if you listen to this podcast from anywhere else in the world please send us an email or, or leave us an audio comment on the listener line uh, and tell us where you're from. Tell us about your airport. Tell us about your flying. Uh, that would be pretty fascinating to hear about uh, flying around the world. The person furthest away from Oshkosh, <laughs> Wisconsin, wins a free subscription. Yeah, okay. You were scaring me there for a second, Jeff. I'm going, oh, man, what's he giving away? But, uh, yeah, sure, what the heck. We'll pony up for a free subscription. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And well, the second, second, second place gets two free that's right. Yeah, that's right. Second, second place that will never be removed from the subscription list. <laughs> well, as always, boys, thank you. It's a pleasure. I enjoy talking with you each, uh, each week. And uh, Dave, if, if our listeners want to learn more about Dave and his work, you can check him out at DaveHigdon.com and Jeb Burnside at uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com or AvWeb.com or JebBurnside.com and uh, myself at JackHodgson.com. And, of course, check out uh, Learn about uh, all, all of us and the podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com bye bye so long folks go fly thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you again next time Australia, Mexico or France maybe tomorrow maybe today I'm on the international baseline dreaming the day away you can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. On the international talk, the language you learn. 
Anything you say is never clearly understood. If we meet happen to me, I can hear my conscience rapping to me. It's like, hey, you only got one real friend from the cradle to the grave and back again. With unconditional love, that's my mother I'm speaking of. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. My love will never change. My love will never change. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is.